Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode contains graphic descriptions of murder. Please listen at your own discretion. Tara grew up on a small farm in Perkins, Michigan, with her parents and her sister Alicia. Growing up, Tara dreamed of success, wanting to make a lot of money, drive nice cars, and have a big house. She also wanted a husband and a family. She went to Michigan State University, where she met Stephen Grant in 1994. That year, she graduated with a degree in business administration with an emphasis on marketing and landed an entry-level marketing job for a global engineering firm. And he worked in the state senate office of an Oakland County politician. Tara loved art. So it was only fitting that Grant proposed to her on the marble steps of the Detroit Institute of the Arts. Her dreams were coming true. She married Stephen in 1996 and settled into Washington Township in Michigan. She did well in her job and climbed the corporate ladder that had her jetting off to Europe, England, and eventually Puerto Rico. Then they had two children, first Lindsay, then Ian. Stephen settled into his role as Mr. Mum while also working his family's tool and die shop. With Tara working out of town from Monday to Friday, they hired a 19-year-old au pair from Germany to help out with the kids who are now four and six years old. Over time, their marriage began to show little cracks. He felt she belittled him, and he was vocal about her time away from the children, and they argued about it often. Then things got a little too close between Stephen and the au pair, and he fell in love with her. There's no indication that Tara knew of the affair, but his unhappiness escalated and he was suspicious of a male co-worker that she often traveled with, but Tara brushed it off. It was strictly work. On Friday, February 9, 2007, Tara's flight home from Puerto Rico landed at the Detroit Metro Airport and around 9 p.m. she called Stephen to let him know. She arrived home around 10 p.m. and headed upstairs to the master bedroom where he was all ready for bed. She began unpacking one of her suitcases and told him that she was heading back to Puerto Rico on Sunday morning, a day earlier than usual, and that her male co-worker was going to Puerto Rico as well on Sunday. Stephen was not happy, and they started to argue. Both the Herald Palladium and the Detroit Free Press reported that Tara turned away, and Stephen grabbed her left wrist, and he told her she wasn't going anywhere, that they were going to finish this conversation. They were standing near the bathroom when she slapped his face, scratching his nose. He struck her back. She fell backwards, hitting her head on the floor. Terry yelled at him and threatened to take the kids, and said he would be homeless and that it was over, and threatened to call the police. Stephen started choking her. She started to get up from the floor, but he put his right hand on her neck and squeezed. He didn't let up. At one point, she reached out and grabbed his hand, 
but that didn't stop him. He felt her looking at him, so he grabbed a nearby piece of clothing and covered her face. His mind was reeling. He knew she would tell, and he would go to prison. He had to stop her from telling. He kept squeezing her neck. Then he panicked, telling himself, I killed my wife. The two young children were still asleep in their beds down the hall. Tara was dead at only 34. His mind stumbled, trying to think of his next move. He had to make her body smaller. He placed a belt around her neck and tightened it, then dragged her body down the stairs and into the garage. He attempted to put her in the back of her SUV, but the belt broke and her body fell. Her head hit the cement floor, making a hollow sound. He tried again and managed to get her lifeless body into the back of the SUV. He then covered it in plastic. Two days later on Sunday, Stephen drove the SUV with Tara's body in the back to his family's tool and die shop. He looked around trying to figure out how to cut up her body and hide the evidence, and he spotted the big bandsaw. But then he thought, no, I can't use that. It will make too much of a mess. Then he got the idea to take the long blade off the bandsaw, and placing it in a vise, he broke the blade into six pieces. He wrapped a rag around one end of the blade and used it to cut Tara's hands off. Her body was stiff and cutting was difficult. His body retched and he threw up. He downed some whiskey to get the courage to finish. He cut the next joint, then the next one, and kept going. As he cut the pieces, he laid them on a plastic sheet he'd spread out. He then put her body parts into black plastic garbage bags and put them in the plastic storage container and loaded it into the SUV. He drove back to their home with her body. Early Monday morning, he loaded up a red sled in the back of the SUV, placed the plastic container on the sled and headed to the Stony Creek Metro Park, not far from their house. He trudged into the woods, pulling the sled behind him. He had a plan to disperse her remains throughout the area, but when the terrain started to drop off by the power lines, Without warning, the sled took off down the hill. Stephen raced after it, but couldn't catch it. The sled hit a tree, broke apart. Body parts flew out. He hid her head in a tree stump, buried her torso in the snow, then buried the sled and remaining pieces also in the snow. Then he went home, destroyed Tara's laptop, cell phone, work papers, and her purse. The next day, he returned to the park and used razor blades to cut open the plastic bags. He removed her remains and spread them under fallen trees in the woods. He threw the black garbage bags and latex gloves into a plastic bag and tossed it. Five days after he killed his wife, Stephen took the clothes he'd been wearing and put them in a paper bag and threw them in a garbage can on his way to the sheriff's office to file a missing persons report. It was February 14th. He told them about the argument he had with Tara and claimed that he'd overheard her say to someone, I'll be there in a minute. Then around 11.15 that night, carrying a suitcase and a laptop, she walked out the door and into a dark-colored vehicle. When asked why it took him so long to report her missing, 
He responded by saying he thought she had gone silent because of their argument, and that he'd called her mother, a family friend, and even her boss looking for her. Her parents and her sister flew from Ohio to Michigan to help in the search. His sister, Kelly, and her husband, who lived 20 minutes away, took in Lindsay and Ian. An evidence technician went to Tara and Stephen's home and noticed a scratch on his nose and took a photo. But he explained it away, saying he'd gotten the scratch at work. The next day, the sheriff's office spotted Stephen speeding and pulled him over. The deputy noticed his license was suspended and arrested him. They took him to the county jail and questioned him for six hours about his wife. They also discovered he had $3,000 in cash on him, which he claimed he'd gotten from cashing his paycheck to pay his lawyer. Grant then hired a former FBI agent now working as a private detective to help find Tara. He'd also hired lawyer David Grimm and refused to talk to the sheriff's office directly. When they wanted to ask him questions, they were instructed to fax his lawyer. Then he would reply by fax, and he refused to take a polygraph test. Ten days after Tara disappeared, the Malcolm Shani Sheriff's Office asked the public for help in locating her. They described her as 5'6 with brown hair and brown eyes. They said her cell phone had been turned off, her credit cards hadn't been used, and she hadn't returned to work. Twelve days after Tara's murder, police received information from an ex-girlfriend of Stevens. In late January, he emailed her saying his wife was having an affair with a co-worker, and he asked his ex to see her naked. He said a photo would be nice, but he preferred to see her in person. She reminded him he was a married man. Police spoke to Tara's co-worker, who said they weren't having an affair, weren't romantically linked, and that he didn't know where she was. Although Stephen's lawyer advised him against speaking to the media, he engaged with them often. Always tearful and begging his wife to come home and acting the part of the concerned husband. Tara's sister spoke of her dedication to her children and how she would fly home for their special events. But eventually, Stephen publicly became critical of his wife in the media for the time she spent away working and away from their children. On February 21st, in a 90-minute interview at his lawyer's office, with the Detroit Free Press, he told them that she had gone missing before, but never for this long. And he said, I pray she's with some guy than any of the other options. And he insisted that their marriage was strong despite rocky patches. He said she'd had an affair a few years ago and that they'd gone to counseling to save their marriage. He also claimed that detectives had told him he was their number one suspect. But the sheriff responded that we have never said he is a suspect, but that his actions were suspect. On Thursday, February 22nd, the sheriff announced they were going to search the park and wooded area near their house on the weekend. Stephen panicked. He knew they'd find her torso buried in the snow. So Thursday night, he set his alarm clock, but it didn't go off. He didn't make it back to the park until very early Saturday morning. He found her torso, frozen solid. He hoisted it up on his shoulder and carried it out. He took it back to his garage and hid it in a black garbage bag. On Saturday, before their search began, the sheriff's office admitted that the chances of finding Tara alive were narrow, and that at this point, they were looking for a body. But Stephen wouldn't be taking part in the search. His lawyer David had read a report on the Detroit Free Press's website 
that quoted the sheriff saying that his participation would be a hindrance and that we don't need him there unless he knows where she's at. Around 150 searchers, including her family, spread out to search the area around Tara and Stevens' home, including the 5,000-square-foot park. The search began at 8 a.m. and lasted four and a half hours. Police and searchers did not find anything, not one clue, not one body part. That afternoon, Stephen moved Tara's torso again, back to the tool and die shop, and hid it in a room upstairs. The sheriff's office vowed to continue their investigation, and the FBI were now involved. Dozens of tips had come in, some bizarre, such as she'd been a contestant on the Wheel and Fortune TV show. Tara's story had gripped the nation, and the media was widespread across the United States. Some even compared her case to another missing woman, Lacey Peterson, and although they didn't know it at the time, that comparison would turn out to be eerily similar. On Thursday, March 1st, Stephen moved Tara's torso again. He took a plastic container from his garage, drove to the shop, and retrieved her body. He put it in the plastic container labeled Boys' Clothes and put it back in his garage. Meanwhile, a neighbor found that plastic bag with latex gloves, blood, metal shavings, and black garbage bags that Stephen had tossed and informed the police. They finally had the evidence they needed to get a search warrant. It was issued around 5 p.m. on Friday, March 2nd, for both the house and the tool and die shop. Police descended on the house with a mobile crime lab, but Stephen wasn't under arrest yet. They briefly detained him by putting him in the back of a police car where he called his lawyer. Without being charged, he was free to leave. He knew it was only a matter of time before they found her. He handed police his house key, grabbed his dog, and called his sister to pick him up. And for some unknown reason, police did not follow him. The next morning, investigators found tiny spots of blood on the walls in the master bedroom and the bathroom floor. Then, they were stunned when they entered the garage and discovered Tara's torso still wearing her blood-soaked blouse and fragments of her dress pants. Meanwhile, the Lansing State Journal reported that around 100 police officers were back at the park searching, and this time they found her body parts. Stephen was charged with murder and dismemberment and mutilation, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. That afternoon, he boarded a neighbor's yellow pickup truck and turned his cell phone off so police couldn't track him, he called his lawyer a few times and rambled on, incoherently sounding suicidal. He took Vicodin pills with him and stopped and bought supplies, including a cap gun. If he got into a confrontation with police, he planned on pulling it and committing suicide by cop. He was drinking Irish cream and whiskey as he drove north, and just past Harbor Springs on the M119 highway, he drove along a narrow two-lane road called the Tunnel of Trees an iconic attraction with curves that wind under canopy of trees with glimpses of Lake Michigan. Tara and Stephen had enjoyed drives along this road, and he felt it was a fitting place to end it. He pulled over to write a goodbye note to Lindsay and Ian, but the Vicodin was making him feel out of it, and although he was having a hard time seeing and started to hallucinate, he drove to a small store across Village to buy more whiskey and planned to combine it with the sleeping pills and never wake up. 
He put his notepad in a bag and pen in his pocket and called his sister. He told her of his plan to walk to a cabin in the woods and succumb to the freezing temperatures and told authorities where they could find his body the next morning. He left the truck and started walking. Stephen's sister called the police. His cell phone was still on and they managed to trace it to Wilderness State Park where they found the abandoned pickup and started searching on foot and by snowmobile. A helicopter spotted tracks in the snow and early Sunday morning they found him in thick bush huddled under a fallen tree. He had wandered three miles and was only wearing pants, a shirt, and socks. He was airlifted to a local airport, then transported by ambulance to hospital and treated for hypothermia and frostbite. Autopsy results on Tara confirmed that she had likely died of strangulation, and although authorities believed the parts found all belonged to her, DNA tests were performed to confirm it. Stephen's lawyer, David Grimm, terminated their relationship, claiming that it was time for him to move on. In the hospital, Stephen wrote out a three-page confession. In it, he details how the murder happened, when, where, and how it got rid of her body. He gave further details to investigators in a four-hour interview. He talked a lot about himself, and in a twisted gesture, offered to help police locate any of Tara's body that they hadn't found yet. The prosecution requested that he be charged with first-degree or premeditated murder, as strangulation often takes five minutes for the victim to die. Stephen recovered in hospital within a couple days. Leslie and Ian were removed from his sister's home by the state. Her and her husband were seeking temporary custody, and so was Tara's sister. A judge appointed a defense lawyer for Stephen, who then tried to get the confession thrown out, but the judge ruled that he had provided it freely and it would be used in his trial. Court records indicated that Stephen pled guilty to mutilating a corpse. Then, on December 7th, his murder trial began. The jury was compromised of six men and six women. A therapist working with Tara's two children wrote a letter to the court indicating that they had suffered significant emotional harm as a result of the crime and a letter submitted by Tara's sister claimed that the children may have witnessed part of the crime and were traumatized by it. After the prosecution and the defense rested their cases, it took the jury three days of deliberations to come to their verdict. They did not feel it was premeditated and found Stephen guilty of second-degree murder. Meanwhile, Tara's family had filed a civil lawsuit for wrongful death to prevent Stephen from profiting from her murder. A judge awarded them $50 million. In early February 2008, the Detroit News reported that Stephen's jailhouse conversations with his sister were recorded over an 11-month period. This is common in all prisons, and signs are posted advising both inmates and visitors. In the recordings, he can be heard joking about whether Tara would be buried with all her body parts in one casket. And he schemed with his sister how they could write a book and she would get paid, circumventing the lawsuit. The prosecution asked the judge to consider a lengthy sentence considering the details of the murder, and the judge obliged, sentencing Stephen to 50 to 80 years in prison. He was also sentenced to 10 years for mutilation to be served concurrently. Tara's children went to live permanently with their sister Alicia, and Stephen appealed his sentence, 
which was denied. He is in prison at the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility in Michigan. The earliest he will be released is March 3, 2057, when he is 87 years old. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Mary Fonder. She spent the 14 years after her father's disappearance attending church in a sleepy little town. Then a new member joined who seemed to get all the attention. Mary's jealousy festered until it boiled over into murder. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.